Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. This morning's text, we will be in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we will be reading verses 8 through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that... When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. May the Lord be glorified by the preaching of his word. Well, good morning. Um, it's wonderful to, uh, to be with you once again today. Um, I want to say at the beginning uh, that uh, it's a little strange um, to be doing this. Um, I've been, been here at this church a little over two years, and uh, I've, I've just really um, experienced over the last two years of, of what it's like to be in the body of Christ and to, to just know what it's like to be uh, encouraged and blessed um, by the saints of God. And uh, so I, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I, I, I really watch you guys and kind of use that to sort of figure out, uh, you know, okay, that's, so, so that's, that's kind of how, how you live this Christian life. And so I'm really thankful to all of you, and as I've been preparing this sermon, I know that, um, I know that many of you have been praying, praying for me uh, and giving me encouragement. And so uh, I'm able to just trust in God that if we open up his scripture and lay the meaning bare before you, that the Lord will bless his people. And so, let's pray to our great God that he will do that this morning. Father in heaven, would you please help us today, help us to understand your word, help me to be true to the meaning of the text, and would you let your goodness pass before us, that we would see Jesus Christ and that we would follow this word in the way that you would intend. So please move in us today, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, if you'll remember back to August, Pastor Steve uh, has been taking us through Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24. And that chapter presses upon us the certainty of Jesus' return and urges us to be ready. And this certainty of the return of Christ brings up the question, what does it look like to be ready? 
What sort of things are Christians to be doing while waiting, while we live in eager expectation for the coming of our Lord? There's several answers that we could give, several good answers that we could give to that question. We might say something like this. We should use our time while we wait to worship, pray, and enjoy fellowship with other Christians. While these are wonderful things to be doing, it is striking to consider that all of those things, worship, prayer, and fellowship with other Christians, will be enjoyed after the second coming of Christ. In the new heavens and in the new earth, we will be doing all of these things, and we'll be doing them in a way that is significantly better, significantly more enjoyable than it is here in this age. And so perhaps to think about what we should be doing in this age, we need to go uh, a little bit further. Maybe a more detailed answer can be found in considering this. What is God accomplishing in this present age? In this present age, God is at work redeeming a people for himself. That is the major work that is being accomplished during the present age. So consider with me a few New Testament scriptures that will prove that. I'll go quickly through these, so don't worry about flipping, uh, flipping through your Bibles to keep up. So the first one, John chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus says, or John says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And there we see the mission of Jesus. Sent by God the Father to seek and to save that which is lost. And then again in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus passes this mission along to his disciples, saying, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So we see that God sent the Son in order to save and redeem, and then Jesus sends his disciples to go out and accomplish the same thing. And we can add to this by reading from Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So note that last part. I am with you to the end of the age. So this is the work of the present age. The making of Christian disciples in all the nations of the earth. So how does God accomplish this work? Surely, we know that our sovereign God will accomplish all that He has willed. But how does He actually apply the saving work of the gospel? We see in Scripture that His normal method of redeeming the lost is through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. Consider Paul's words in Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Thus God has made the way that sinners from all the earth can be redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ and he's at work in the present age applying that work, and he does it through Christians who will go out and share the gospel. And so does this help us to answer our question, what are we to be doing in this present age? 
If it is the mission of God to save the elect, then does that help us to formulate our priorities? See that every day that goes by, as Steve will often uh, remind us, is another day that lost sinners might be brought to Christ. And so what could possibly be more interesting and more compelling and more worthwhile for Christians than to participate in this great mission of God? Think of the unique privilege that we have in this present age. In heaven, there will be no darkness. No one walking around who does not know about the goodness of our God. But yet in this age, we are surrounded by those living in darkness without a hope in life or in death. And so what an opportunity that we have to share with them the only true source of hope that they can find. And so... In light of all of that, our question for today is what prevents us from sharing the gospel? What prevents us from going out and sharing our faith? We know that we are so often stopped when we sense the opportunity. I think we know what it's like. We see it. We see the person. The opportunity seems to arise, but fears and doubts rise to the surface, and we are kept silent. In our passage today, Peter tells us that we are always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Peter wants us always to be prepared. Yet, my guess is if, that, if we took a poll and asked who feels like you are prepared always to give this defense, the most of us would have some sort of doubts, again, that would rise to the surface. So Peter wants us to be ready to defend our faith. And that's our goal for today. That everyone, every Christian that leaves here will be ready. Okay? By lunchtime. Okay? So that probably seems like an ambitious goal, but I think that if we understand Peter's command and uh, what he's teaching in First Peter, uh, and we see what he's saying in context, uh, I think we'll see that many of the fears and doubts that stop us will not seem so significant. And hopefully, with God's help, those things will fade away. And so we'll consider four points, two of them uh, from the the letter as a whole, and then two directly from our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3.15. And so starting with the context of the letter, we first need to note its overall purpose. Peter wrote to encourage suffering Christians. And there are two main ways that Peter offers this encouragement. First, by reminding them of their pilgrim status in this world. And second, by reminding them of the sufferings of Christ. And as we go through this, we'll see how both of those are eminently relevant to us sharing and defending the Christian faith. So, regarding the first point, let's go ahead and turn uh, to the beginning of the book of 1 Peter. Reading, one, reading from chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So what does he mean when he says those words, elect exiles of the dispersion? This is not referring to their political status. Rather, it is a reference to a spiritual reality that is brought about from God's election. See there that because God has chosen them, 
they are now destined for an eternity in heaven and therefore are made temporary resident aliens here on earth. This theme is sometimes referred to in the letter explicitly, like in verse 1, but it is constantly alluded to in various ways throughout. So see, for example, if you'll read with me, um, in verses 3 to 7, there's this kind of continuous contrast throughout that section between the things of this world and the things of eternity. Starting from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested in the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, see firstly, the contrast that is implied by verse 4. Look again at verse 4. The inheritance that comes from Jesus Christ is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And we can compare that to the treasures of this world that are subject all the time to death and decay. And see also that the trials so often have the results or the, or the purpose of testing your faith, which has the effect of revealing your faith to be more precious, Peter says, it's more precious than gold. And he reminds us that gold, though it is very valuable in this world, is also something that perishes. And ultimately, it pales in comparison to what lies ahead for the Christian, to what is grasped by you as a result of faith. And see also that the faith is guarded there in verse 5 by God's power. And finally, we see that the fullness of Christian blessing is not realized in this world, but it will be realized at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the teaching is that as, is that as Christian pilgrims, we are to live life with a constant looking forward to eternal life in the better country. And in this way, the Christian can endure suffering because our hope is not bound up in this world for we are merely passing through this world en route to the better country. But notice that this status as Christian pilgrims, this looking forward to the better country, doesn't lead to apathy, to not caring about the things that are happening in this world. Go ahead and turn uh, to chapter 2 and in verse 9. Peter again reminds them, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so we see here that the Christian pilgrim is not simply hunkering down and waiting and waiting for the exile to end. Christian pilgrims are more than temporary resident aliens. They are also ambassadors for the better country. They are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So, as we live as sojourners, we are to do so in such a way that calls people out of darkness and into God's marvelous light, hoping that they will see our good deeds and give glory to God. And so when Peter comes to the subject of defending the faith, which we're looking at today in evangelism and and apologetics, we need to be thinking like Peter, like Peter is encouraging us to do throughout this letter. And we need to be thinking about this subject as Christian pilgrims. So how might this affect our thinking? Firstly, as Christian pilgrims, we are not to be tempted by earthly goals in defending our faith. We don't set out to do evangelism for credit from peers, to pad the membership rolls and increase tithe money. We don't do so to try to somehow get respect from unbelievers. Rather, we do it because we're gripped by the reality that all those who won't turn to Christ are destined for eternal condemnation. And so we won't compromise as Christian pilgrims, knowing that this is not our world. We won't compromise to be liked and appreciated in this world, but we must and we will stay true to the Christian gospel. Secondly, as Christian pilgrims, we're not tempted by the pragmatism which infects much of modern evangelism. We don't believe those that tell us that evangelism, that leading someone to Christ, is much like sales. It's the simple art of persuasion. And so they might suggest that we can run our churches like a tech startup or a Fortune 500 company. But we don't trust in these earthly models to glorify God and to bring people to Christ. Rather, we know that the only way to do evangelism as Christian pilgrims is according to the manual, the only manual that's given to Christian pilgrims. And so, with this theme, we are encouraged in the face of suffering from a host of errors. So we're encouraged and then we're guarded from a host of errors that might befall us if we become too enamored and obsessed with the treasures of this world. And the second encouragement that is given by Peter is to be reminded of the suffering of Jesus Christ. When faced with the trials in this world, we are helped in remembering that our Lord also suffered. So we'll go again and and look through some of the examples of how Peter does this. And turn back to chapter 1 and see the first example in verse 18. Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And we can note also that what comes just before that in verse 15 is that Peter is calling his readers and Christians to pursue holiness. He says in verse 15, But as he who called you is holy... So you also be holy in all your conduct. And so Peter reminds us of the precious blood of Christ to encourage us to pursue holiness on our Christian pilgrimage. And so 
here the idea is introduced that the suffering of Christ is not simply something that we think on once and we believe in in order that we get saved, but it actually has a present effect. It's something that, 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 that affects the way that, that we think and the way that we act on a daily basis. And Peter keeps pressing this before our minds that we might be reminded of this and think in this way. So see the second example in chapter 2. In verse 3, he begins a section where he goes through um, a couple use cases of applying the principles of Christian, uh, of, of Christian living to various cases. And he goes through three examples of, of submission. Um, as a result of who you are in Christ, he's urging people to submit in various contexts. And the context in verse 18 is servants submitting to unjust masters. Now, this is a very real and this is a very practical and daily problem that someone might experience. And Peter urges them to submit even to these unjust masters. Now, why should anyone do that? Why should anyone waste their time? Why should they not curse and seek to undermine and seek to oppose these unjust masters? Well, Peter gives the answer in verse 21. He says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so we see for Peter, Christ is the example that helps us through our daily struggles. Not only that, if we continue reading, we'll see that in the face of, um, of suffering, if we continue reading in that passage, it says that Christ committed no sin, that no deceit was found in his mouth. While he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that is the model for us. That in the way that Christ did not revile, he did not threaten when he was, was unjustly treated and suffered on the cross, we are to follow him in that same way and entrust ourselves to our faithful creator who loves us. A few more examples of this, you can turn to chapter 4, in verse 1, Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We are to think in light of the fact that Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh. He says in 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. And then finally, chapter 5, verse 1, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. And so this, the suffering of Christ, forms a major theme of how Peter wants us to think as we live in this world as Christian pilgrims. Now it's interesting to note that of all of the things that Peter saw and heard from Jesus Christ that he is particularly anxious to remind us of Christ's suffering. He doesn't labor to remind us that Jesus had defeated the Pharisees or of his overturning of the tables, his mighty signs and wonders, or something like the transfiguration. But Peter, for Peter, it is Christ's suffering that needs particular emphasis as we go through this world as Christian pilgrims. So how does this apply to the subject of apologetics? 
while Peter has been writing much about suffering, I guess it could be possible we might think that he's now made a transition to a different topic. We've been talking about suffering in the Christian life, and maybe he's shifted now to the great subject of the intellect, of evangelism. But I don't think that there's any such transition. And I'm convinced that if we're to understand Peter's call to evangelism to defend the faith in 315, that we have to understand it in light of all of what Peter says about the Christian pilgrimage and about the suffering of Christ. And so let's look at the immediate context now. You can turn to chapter 3 and we'll be there for the rest of our time. Uh, and look at what surrounds that command in chapter 3, verse 15. I want to first address um, what could be some confusion if you're being good Bereans and you look there uh, at verse 13. Verse 13, Peter says this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So it seems, and some commentators believe that, that Peter has changed the subject here. That, that he's saying maybe in this verse that on the whole, Christians aren't so likely to suffer if they are zealous for what is good. And there, there might be some good reasons for thinking that. And certainly there is a sense that, that if we follow Christian principles in some context, we do enjoy blessing and suffering might be reduced. But I'm, I'm convinced, and this is the case for most of the, most of the commentators uh, that I've read in, in studying this question, that that's not at all what Peter is saying here, that he's saying something far more. So the reason I think that is because throughout the entire letter, uh, Peter has referenced the suffering of his readers and labored not to help them to, uh, to alleviate suffering, not to help them to evade suffering, but to encourage them through it. So it would be very difficult for me to understand how now he is saying, but on the whole, Christians are not likely to suffer. That would be the opposite of what he's been saying throughout the entire letter. And it's also the opposite of Jesus' teaching. Right? Remember what he said? In this world, you will face tribulation. And he said that you will be hated and persecuted for my name's sake. And this was the experience of the first disciples, right? Many of them who were martyred. And this is the experience of Christians all throughout history. And this is the experience of Christians, even today, where in many parts of the world you face direct and harsh persecution simply for being a, a follower of Jesus. And so if that's not what he's saying, then what is Peter saying? What does he mean by this passage? Well, remember, Peter wants us to think like Christian pilgrims. Therefore, when we are faced with suffering for righteousness' sake, we are to look forward to the day of judgment when God will vindicate himself and therefore will vindicate all of his children. And it's from that perspective that even in the face of present suffering that we can say, who is there to harm me? And this is the same thing that Paul is saying in Romans 8. Peter's intent is to say, who is there to harm you in an ultimate sense if you are zealous for what is good? Since the Christian faces many suffering uh, and many trials in this world. And so continuing with that, seeing how this theme of suffering applies directly to our subject for today, evangelism and apologetics, see in verse 14 and 15 that the idea of suffering ties directly with the command to defend the faith. 
Look in verse 15. It says that we're to be ready when someone asks. And when we do this, if you look at verse 14, that, you know, someone who's asking is being connected directly to the ones who are persecuting. You see there that it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. And so the basic idea of this flow from verse 14 to verse 15 is that rather than fearing persecution, we are to see in persecution an opportunity to witness to the gospel. And so the command to be ready is brought about by trials and suffering and persecution. And then finally notice, we've just talked about how he introduces the command with this theme of suffering, but then it's also bracketed just after with a reference to those who slander and revile your good behavior in Christ. And finally, Peter adds the ultimate encouragement for this, for why it is that we can respond to persecutions and suffering by graciously offering the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gives us the same thing he's been reminding us throughout the letter. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so suffering is the context of Peter's command to defend the faith. And we are to do so mindful of Christ's suffering. So what specifically does that do for us? How does that help us to go about this task? First of all, I think that we are helped to see clearly that suffering is not the opposite of blessing. But rather, it's very often the vehicle through which God blesses. See here in this passage, it's as if the people... um, it's as if people like from the community or around your life are seeing your suffering and they see the hope and they see your faith that endures in that suffering and they think to themselves, what, what's with you people? Right? Why is it that you're not tied up in the things that we are so often tied up? Why are you not crippled by the fears that we are crippled with? What is the reason for the hope that is in you? And so it's the suffering that prompts the question. And, and we see that Oftentimes, in God's economy, that things are not what they seem. It is easy for us to get discouraged and think to ourselves, I have shared the gospel so many times, and all I'm getting is judgment and derision. Surely, I am a failure. This is a lost cause, and it's better for me to keep my mouth shut. But remember what Peter keeps reminding us. Think of Jesus Christ on the cross. Did it not seem in that moment that Christ had been defeated? What would his disciples have thought as they saw him hanging on the cross? Maybe they thought it was over. Maybe they had made a mistake in following this man. But in reality, what was happening on the cross is that the serpent had merely wounded the servant's heel. But in reality, Jesus was crushing the serpent's head. And so we see that in God's economy, things are not often what they seem to us. Last year, we heard a sermon from Romans 8, verses 35 and 37, which gives us the same idea. I'll read that. Paul says in this passage, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
So Paul says this, this is the experience of the Christian, that we are sheep led to the slaughter. And so if we are to be dismayed and frightened by our circumstance, right, is that the conclusion that Paul is leading to? No, his response to us as Christians being led to the slaughter is to say that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. So we can take courage when it seems as if we are losing. We can take courage. We know that God is on the throne, that the gates of hell will not prevail. And if God worked his greatest act of love through the worst case of injustice, then we can be trusting him to work in the muck and mire of our own circumstances. When we feel like we're losing, remember that in God's economy, things are not often what they seem. I read a, a great example of this recently. I've, I was studying the um, I was studying the, the history of Christianity um, in a church that has sought to persecute Christians and to suppress the spread of the gospel. And there were some um, leaked government documents that revealed the specific things that the government was doing to try to stop Christianity. And um, after years and years of these state-sponsored and severe persecutions, one of the documents uh, reveals an interesting lament. The government official says this, the more we press, the faster it spreads and grows. Isn't that great? That That this government official was getting an object lesson in Romans 8, that though they persecute us, though they lead you as as lambs taken off to the slaughter, in those very ways, Christ was conquering. The Christians conquer through this suffering because things are not what they often seem. And so secondly, the second application that we can make of this being reminded of the suffering of Christ is that we see uh, that the defense of the faith is something far more than simply an intellectual activity. It's not about winning an argument or pointless pontifications. We are called to love the lost so much that we are willing to follow Christ in suffering for their sake. We'll take on the sufferings of Christ to see them come to repentance. This is what Paul taught in 2 Timothy when he said, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. And in chapter 4, he said, I am being poured out as a drink offering. And so Peter didn't, sorry, Paul, so Paul didn't see his ministry as a victorious parade around the Roman Empire where he would be praised for his wonderful powers of persuasion. He saw himself as being poured out as a drink offering, suffering for the sake of the elect. And this also is what was said about Jesus Christ. Remember, we see that for the joy that was set before him, right, for the joy of seeing lost sinners Come to him for that joy, he endured the cross. And so, when we want to complain and be discouraged about how we're treated as Christians, Peter wants us to remember Jesus Christ on the cross. Have we ever suffered injustice like him? While Jesus was in his greatest act of love, remember that he was surrounded by mockery and scorn. And so being reminded of Christ's suffering should guard us against unrealistic expectations. We see how they treated our Lord, 
And we see that how he loved nonetheless. When we share our faith, we ourselves are exposed to judgment, to mockery, to people who will think that we're foolish. They'll think that we're closed-minded. They might even think that we're bigoted. They may want nothing to do with us, or they may even seek to harm us. But will we endure all things, like Paul, who himself was following Christ, will we endure all things for the sake of the elect? Will we share our faith as those who have heeded the call of Christ to take up our cross and to follow him? So with that in mind, we would ask the question that what would enable someone like you or someone like me to be able to do something like this? What would actually enable us to suffer for the sake of the lost? We should note that suffering doesn't magically become not suffering just because we're thinking like Christian pilgrims, right? We're, we're helped by that perspective, but suffering is still suffering. And so it's our natural inclination to fear suffering and to seek to avoid it. Yet, in the face of suffering, Peter wants us to be courageous and opportunistic. And so how do we do that? We do that by employing the mindset for apologetics, the mindset that Peter teaches here in chapter 3, verse 15. So, in this verse, Peter now is going to make specific application of the themes that we've just discussed, and he's going to give us the secret to courage. So, from the middle of verse 14, he writes, Have no fear of them, right? Thinking back to those who would persecute us. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. If we are to be courageous in the face of suffering, and if we are to be a bold witness for the gospel, we must have hearts and minds that are committed to honoring Jesus Christ. What this means is that we use the word of Christ for the standard of all of our thinking. It means that the person of Christ becomes the standard for us, our highest example of what is good and right, and true, and beautiful, and it means that we meditate often and think often on the promises of Jesus Christ, and we train ourselves to want and desire the promises of Christ more than the pleasures of this world. And I think also uh, implied here and necessary here is the pursuit of holy living and fighting against the sin that we know offends him. So Peter writes much Uh, in this letter about holiness. Note from chapter 1. Whoops. I hit something. Um, Note from uh, chapter 1, in verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all of your conduct. So here we see the connection between setting our hope fully on the promises of Christ and living holy lives. I think we can see that when we indulge in sin, that we're pulled away from the promises of God. 
that we become more enamored with the temporary pleasures that we've given into or that we've pursued in some way. And so the promises of, of God now seem to be fuzzy and they don't seem to have the same power in us to generate in us hope and to generate in us courage. And this eventually, this giving in to sin, not leaning, not trusting in those promises of God has the result of turning us into cowards so that we are fearful of these sufferings. We are fearful of the ones who would persecute us because we've been indulging the sin. We've lost sight of the glorious promises of Christ because we're more concerned with the things of this world. And so Peter wants for us the opposite. He wants for us to live lives that are fully devoted to honoring Jesus Christ. And it's by training our desires to align with Christ that we are made courageous. We need to love what Christ loves and desire what he desires. And only then are we able to endure hardships in this world. Remember that Peter had experienced this same sort of thing himself. If we think back to, uh, to Matthew chapter 16, when Peter rebuked Jesus, he rebuked Jesus for, saying that, for Jesus saying that he was going to suffer and die. And at that rebuke, Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so Peter, having his mind on the things of man, also earned a rebuke from our Lord when he drew his sword and he struck the, the, the servant of the high priest. And to this Jesus said, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And so we see that Peter here hadn't yet learned to think like a Christian pilgrim. He was thinking not of the things of God, but focused on the things of man. And as a result, he acted irrationally. And then we know that the culmination of this is that Peter was reduced to a coward when confronted by the girl in the courtyard, when he was confronted simply by a servant girl. But after the resurrection, Peter had learned the secret to boldness. Honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Think his thoughts after him, and you will not fear the schemes of man. And so later on in the book of Acts, after all this, when he was confronted by the high priest and threatened and commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus, his answer in chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And that demonstrated there in Acts chapter 5, that is the mindset for defending the faith. That is the mindset for apologetics. So an important thing that we can note about this is that what we have just discussed is the primary preparation for apologetics. It's setting our hearts and minds on Christ that is the primary preparation for apologetics. Peter says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared. There's some prominent apologetics who seem to think that Peter didn't really give us a clear answer as to how to get prepared. How to get prepared. Uh, we're often reminded in, in apologetics materials, if you watch YouTube or, or read some of the articles or read some of the books on this stuff, we're reminded of the command to be, pre to be prepared, 
but it, it seems as if they think that Peter doesn't really tell us how to do that. And so as a result, buy my book, right? Take my course. Um, that is the way that you will be prepared. Now, I, I'm not hating on the apologetics resources. I love that stuff. I, I find them very beneficial, and, and, and I would encourage people to get into them if you have time and enjoy it. <clears throat> but we do need to note that Peter does answer the question. Peter's answer is that when we honor Christ as Lord, we are made ready for the work of evangelism. What is really going to make you ready? What is really going to prepare you to defend the faith? What is going to make you bold and give you a heart that loves the lost enough to endure suffering? Is it an apologetics course that gives you answers and, and, and fancy techniques? It is the clear, a clearer sight of, your, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that can give us the heart that is ready to endure suffering for the sake of the lost. And so there's no extra biblical information that you can employ, that you can use in order to change your heart and give you the mindset and the heart ready to do, to do apologetics. It's only the work of God by the Spirit in the heart of the Christian that can do that. And so if we would be prepared to defend our faith, we must, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, this is part of the reason why I made that bold claim at the start of the sermon, that we would be ready by lunchtime, should anyone come to us, to defend our faith. And that's because you don't need specialized philosophical training. Right? We need our Lord. We need to honor our Lord as God. And so do you realize that every Lord's Day service, you are being prepared to defend the faith? You're being prepared when you pray, when you sing hymns, when you fight against the sin in your life, when you read upon and meditate on the world, uh, on the word, not on the world, when we meditate on the word, the Lord is using these things to prepare us to be faithful and effective witnesses for him. And so we might have doubts that all of those normal Christian things are sufficient to prepare us to defend our faith. After all, we, we, most of us have a long record of, of failures when it comes to that. And so we know that when we defend the faith, we eventually come to a point where we have to open up our mouths and say something, and this often is where things get complicated. And so the final thing that I want to talk about is to clarify what exactly is the content that we need to defend in order to be a witness for Jesus Christ? What is the content of the message that we offer to defend and share our faith? Peter says that we are to be prepared, you can look again at the verse, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We need to be prepared to defend the hope that is within. Now, there are many resources out there, as I've alluded to before, uh, that, can, that are intended to help you towards this end. You could find books that teach you about scientific evidences that confirm biblical theism, books on archaeology to show you how recent discoveries uh, confirm the biblical history. You can find um, historians that are, are more and more recognizing the reliability of the biblical authors. You can see mountains of evidence that are supporting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You could also read books that are more philosophically inclined to show you the harmony and the truthfulness 
of the Christian worldview and the futility and contradiction of all other competing worldviews. So, all of these things are wonderful, and if you have time and interest, you can employ them to great use. But we need to be careful that all of this information available to us doesn't cripple us. If you read the introductions of these books, you'll discover the author's perspective on why it's necessary to be aware of the information contained in their book. While these books may be very helpful, it's easy to become discouraged by the sheer volume of information that seems necessary to fully defend the Christian faith. And we may think to ourselves, I can't get it all. There's no way that I can understand, I can keep all of these things, I can be ready for all of the objections that the, Christian, or that the non-Christian may throw at me, and so I'm just going to leave it to the experts. Okay, but remember, Peter here, we haven't talked about this, but, but I promise you, Peter's not writing to experts. He's writing to normal, regular, everyday Christians, and he doesn't give for us a list, this long ex- list of things that you need to know in order to be a faithful witness. But he says... Be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. That is our focus when we defend the faith. And so, I would ask you, what is your hope? Is your hope in what the archaeologist says? What the scientist or the historian are saying? Is your hope that James White and William Lane Craig do a great job in debates and have reduced their opponents to mere rubble time after time? Isn't your hope that, Je- that, that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead? Isn't that what our hope is in? So let's consider this with a hypothetical situation. So let's say that you have a scientifically inclined neighbor. And by God's providence, you've developed a friendship with this person. And you've learned about how he sees the world. So you've decided that you'd like to witness to this person. And you begin praying for him and you decide to purchase a few books that will help you to defend the faith from a more scientific perspective. Now, to be clear, I'm not disparaging this, okay? I think that if this is the situation that you're in, you are doing a wonderful thing. You're responding to God's providences in your life. He's brought this person into your life, and you're seeking to love them and to witness to them personally in a way that they can understand. But imagine that this afternoon... While you're waiting for the books to come, that your neighbor arrives on your porch. And he seems distraught, and he begins to tell you how he's struggling under many burdens. He feels an odd sense of guilt and hopelessness. And seeing the way that you live your life, and knowing you to be a Christian, he says, give me a reason for the hope that is within you. What are you going to say? Could you wait? Just give me a couple weeks. I'm waiting for these books to come, and after that I can give you a great reason. I can answer all of your questions. It's going to be wonderful. Just wait. No, okay? You give him a reason for the hope that is in you. Your hope is that God raised Jesus from the dead, right? That you've believed on him because repentance for the forgiveness of sins has been preached into all the world. And the Bible says that if you believe on the Lord Jesus, that you will be saved. We know that, that he who began a good work in you is will bring it to completion on the day of the Lord Jesus. And so you're, you're looking forward in hope to the day of the Lord Jesus. You know that, that 
though my sins are many, that every single sin is forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your hope, right? It's not the content of all of these apologetics works. Our hope is in Jesus Christ the Lord and in his gospel. And so don't be overwhelmed by all of the information. God uses regular Christians through simple and faithful proclamation of the gospel to draw people to himself. But someone might say, it's, it's not sophisticated enough. Won't the modern, western, highly educated individual need more if they're to trust and if they're to believe in the truthfulness of Christianity? To that type of thinking, we can simply read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from verse 18. Is the Christian gospel not sophisticated enough to bring people to the Lord? Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. So friends, what is your hope? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Then you have what it takes to defend the faith. We've seen from this passage that much of what is necessary is simply that we have the right mindset, that we think like Christian pilgrims, hoping in what will be revealed at the coming of Christ, that we remember the sufferings of Christ and follow him and his suffering and loving the lost. And we see that we find courage to do this and the heart to love by honoring Christ and meditating on his promises. And now see that if you are a child of God, that which you are hoping in is exactly what the lost need to hear. So this is Peter's school of apologetics. This is his message. Honor Christ, share the gospel, and trust God. And so we can conclude by seeing this example, or seeing this in an example from Acts chapter 4. This is the passage of Scripture. It's just after Peter and John have healed the crippled man. They've been proclaiming the name of Jesus. There's all of this commotion. It records that thousands are being saved. And the high priest, the most, peop- the most prominent and powerful people in all of Jerusalem, are seeking to oppose and to stop this message. And they say something that, that's interesting, that's helpful for us, in light of all that we've said. The high priests, note this, says, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And so, Peter and John, these uneducated and common men, are turning the world upside down with the simple proclamation of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And when they were opposed by the high priests, 
forced and threatened to stop what they were doing, their response is exactly the mindset that we want to have. They don't reason with them. They don't engage in complicated pontifications and thinking, well, you know, if you'll consider these things, maybe, maybe it's not such a bad message. They had been, as it says there in verse 13, they had been with Jesus. And as a result, their response to the intimidation of the high priest, they say, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That is it. When we spend time with Jesus, we honor him as Christ the Lord. Right? We are made bold and we cannot but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. So may God work in us to accomplish that work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for this day. We do pray that you would work in our hearts, Lord. Only you can work in us to make us love the lost and to make us ready to suffer. So God, would you glorify yourself? Would you show us that it is better for us to take up our cross and follow you and glorify yourself in our families and in our communities? And would you, would you use us, Lord, use our simple proclamation of the gospel to glorify yourself and to save the lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.